Our Father, we give you glory that you have brought us here together this day. I thank you for those that are visiting, for those that you have brought back to us after travels, for those, Lord, that are here faithfully Sunday after Sunday. Lord, I just thank you for each one and for what you're doing in each life. And Lord, I know that we gather here together this morning for a common purpose, uh, for fellowship in you and to hear what you might say to us through your word. And so I ask for your anointing and empowering, for your blessing on this class time, that the spirit of the living God will be upon each of us to accomplish what you desire to do in each of our lives today. We know the scripture is not of any private interpretation. You will take the scripture, the same passage, and apply it to uh, each of our lives in, in whatever manner will make it uh, living and powerful and life-changing for us. And so, Lord, we're open to hear from you today. I ask that you will meet each need here this morning according to your understanding, uh, your knowledge, and, and each person's understanding of their need. And I ask, Lord, that throughout this complex, in every class and in the service that is concurrent, that you will bless and bring about your great will. In Christ's name, amen. The life of Joshua. Joshua is one of the true heroes of Scripture. As we study this man, we are going to discover that he was a man of great vision, of leadership, and of what we would today call administrative skills. You won't find that word administrative in the Scripture, but that's what we would say today. And of course, this man had a blessing unlike most of us, and that is he had 40 years on-the-job training. Now, for most of us, once we've finished 40 years at a career, we're done. <laughs> we're retiring. He was just being prepared for those 40 years, internship for 40 years under the great man of God, Moses. And part of the reason for that extensive internship was that he would come to understand that the great abilities that he had were God-given and needed to be submitted to God for God's purpose. Every one of us in this room has been blessed by God with skills and abilities. Now, you may not really think you have any particular skills and abilities, but you do. And one of the important truths of Scripture is that we need to be in submission to God so that He will empower those skills and those abilities for His kingdom purpose. That's His goal for each of our lives. Each of us is a part of the kingdom. We're part of the body of Christ. As you read in Corinthians, you know, an eye, an ear, and a toe, and all the rest of it. And all of it is needed for the body to function as a whole. And each person has his or her a place in that body. And no one can say, I am not needed. Now, for some, we have a tendency, being humans, to put certain people on pedestals, like the Israelites certainly did for Moses and later for Joshua, but everyone is needed. And I think you're finding out, I trust, as we have been finding out through the years that we've been walking with the Lord, that sometimes it is the hardly known person who is a prayer warrior, who makes more difference in the kingdom than the upfront persons who are presenting the scripture or the word or whatever they might be doing. Prayer is such a powerful tool in changing the kingdom as it applies to this world. 
Joshua was probably 40 to 50 years younger than Moses. And he will live beyond Moses by about 40 years or so. And so Moses had already been in life and out wandering around in the wilderness of Sinai leading sheep by the time Joshua even came on the scene. And then, of course, Moses will die and Joshua must carry on for the years that are ahead. The time frame is not exact, but it's pretty likely that Joshua lived somewhere in the frame of the 15th to the 14th centuries before Christ. Now, this is the power of Scripture, that a man who died 3,300 years ago can speak to us the truth of God as if he were living in our midst right now. We can study the life of Joshua and almost feel like we're talking to Joshua. And hearing him say, this is how God worked through me. This is how God prepared me. There is absolutely nothing anachronistic about the spiritual truths of Scripture. The spiritual truths of Scripture never go out of date because God is immutable. It's like this morning, if you were listening at all, we, I just heard a little snippet of uh, Lutzer. And, and he was saying some people think that the Old Testament is a picture of God before he evolved into a more laid-back modern God, you know, who, who is not as concerned about those things that he was back in the old days, you know. But as you and I know, from both the Old Testament and from Hebrews 13.8, where we read that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, yes, even forever. This is a statement of the immutability of God. And we find that throughout Scripture, God is unchanging. God is the same. And so as we discover these truths that were applied in the life of Joshua, we will discover those same truths apply to you and to me today. And we can live within those truths as Joshua did and be on track with what God has called us to be. As we will see, God used this man Joshua in many ways, but he is certainly best known from the Scripture as leader of the conquest. I'd like to begin this morning in terms of Scripture by reading from the 13th chapter of Numbers. We will get into the book of Joshua, yes. But this is the life of Joshua. And so I want to bring us up to speed to the moment when Joshua stood there before the theophany and said, are you for us or are you against us? How did he arrive at that moment? Well, we need to look at his life. So let's go back to the 13th chapter of Numbers. First one, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Send out for yourself men, so that they may spy out the land of Canaan, which I am going to give to the sons of Israel. You shall send a man from each of their father's tribes, every one a leader among them. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran at the command of the Lord, all of them men who were heads of the sons of Israel. These then were their names. From the tribe of Reuben, Shamua, the son of Zakur, from the tribe of Simeon, Shaphat, the son of Horai, and of the tribe of Judah, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, of the tribe of Issachar, Egal, the son of Joseph, and from the tribe of Ephraim, Hoshea, the son of Nun. I won't 
won't go reading through the rest of them, but go down to verse 16. These are the names of the men who Moses sent to spy out the land, but Moses called Hoshea, the son of Nun, Joshua. From this passage of Scripture, we find out just about everything Scripture has to say about the life of Joshua before he encounters Moses. All we know about him was that he was of the tribe of Ephraim. The tribe of Ephraim was half of the larger tribe of what? Joseph. The tribe of Joseph broke into Ephraim and Manasseh. So he was of the tribe of Ephraim. And what is very interesting about this is to note, and I, I think I noted this when we did uh, the life of Moses and we, we talked about the spies and so forth, is that the two men, the two spies who will stand up for what is right are Joshua of the tribe of Ephraim and Caleb of the tribe of Judah. And what's interesting about that is, is later on when the kingdoms become divided, the names of the two kingdoms are Ephraim and Judah. So they will be the two largest tribes in terms of actual population and the most powerful tribes in terms of political and economic power in the years that would come further ahead after the days of, uh, of David. We do not know anything about Nun, N-U-N, the father of Joshua except that he was of the tribe of Ephraim. So that's really all we know about Joshua. He's of the tribe of, of Ephraim, that his father was none, and that's it. Apparently, it wasn't important for us to know the earlier part of the life of Joseph, or it would have been uh, recorded in Scripture. Joshua's name was originally given by his parents as Hoshea, which means salvation. Great name. While the change in the Hebrew word is relatively small, the change in the meaning is quite significant, I think. Why did Moses make this change? I think one of the reasons that Moses make the, made the change was that he knew that Joshua one day would experience the leadership role that God had for him. And so Moses did not want him to be tempted to think that his role in delivering Israel was due to his own strength or his own wisdom. Moses therefore changed his name so that in his name even, he would realize that he was merely an instrument in God's hands. That is a very important truth for all of us to come to recognize. That you and I are not able to influence the kingdom of God for good except by the power of God. Doesn't matter what skills we have, what abilities we have, what fame we have, what fortune we have. None of that will make any difference in the kingdom of God except as God empowers it and uses it for his glory. And so Moses wanted Joshua to know that even in his name. So he changed his name, Hoshea, which meant salvation, to Joshua, which meant Yahweh is salvation. You are not salvation, jo Joshua. God is salvation. You will be God's instrument of salvation. You are not personally salvation. He, of course, would know it. He's fights in victory over the Amalekites. That would seem to be the most appropriate time for him to make the change, but, but we don't know because we have to realize that Moses wrote the Pentateuch. And so when Moses wrote the Pentateuch, he wrote it after these things had taken place. So certainly <coughs> he would probably have called Joshua Joshua all the, all the time through, regardless of when he had changed his name. 
as he recorded it later on in time. The very, from the very first mention of him in Exodus 17, he is called Joshua. And if it weren't for this parenthetical statement here in uh, Numbers 13, we wouldn't even know his name used to be Hosea. But obviously to God, through Moses, it was determined to be important. And so that message has been delivered to us. I think there's some other thing that's significant about this. The changing of Joshua's name seems to imply a special relationship between Moses and Joshua, almost a father-son relationship. In fact, uh, one of the commentators, Ronald Allen, who wrote a commentary on Numbers, says this, this change of name is a fatherly action on Moses' part. It is as though he adopted his young aide and marked him for greatness. I wonder what Joshua thought when, when Moses changed his name. You don't like my name? <laughs> but of course he was honored to have a greater name. Yahweh is salvation. And I think Joshua was proud of it throughout his life. Now considering the fact, two, two facts here, uh, this seems like a, an appropriate analysis here because Moses' own sons, Gershom and Eliezer, seem to play absolutely no role in the work of their father. They're, they're basically unnoted later on in Scripture. And the fact that God obviously had ordained Joshua to be Moses' successor, with these two facts being true, it is only natural that a kind of father-son relationship uh, developed here between Joshua and Moses. And I think you can assume that throughout these 40 or so years, well, 40 years, that Moses and Joshua had this relationship. It was a developing sort of father-son relationship between these two men. From the very first month of the Exodus, Joshua was near Moses and ready to serve him in any capacity that he could. His first major role that we know of in Scripture was as battle commander. So let's back up to Exodus 17. Exodus 17, beginning at verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought against Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose men for us and go out. Fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will station myself on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought against Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. So it came about when Moses held his hand up that Israel prevailed, and when he let his hand down, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy. Then he took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other. Thus his hands were steady until the sun set. So Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua, that I will blot out, utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and named it the Lord is my banner, my standard, my battle pennant. And he said, The Lord has sworn the Lord will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. 
Uh, you've probably all heard messages about how, um, you know, persons carrying on in the work of the Lord need to be supported by others and helped and held up in prayer in various other ways as Aaron and her held up the arms of Moses so that the victory could be, could be had. And, and these are good um, uh, points to make here from this. And I think also it's a good point to understand that our battle standard is the Lord. He is the one who leads us in battle. He is the one who gives us victory. And even though Moses and, <clears throat> and Joshua, particularly, of course, went out into literal physical battle against a physical enemy, you and I war against the unseen enemy all the time. There is a war between the kingdom of God and the forces of Satan. And God is our battle standard in, in it at all times. And if we ever forget that, then we begin to lose ground, as Joshua did when Moses' arms came down. And we need to remember that. And sometimes we get ourselves in a real pickle. Yes, sir? Couldn't there be another meaning also at the same time? The meaning that we're supposed to help our fellow Christians mm -hmm. get weary? Oh, yes. Right. There's no doubt that that is a major truth that you can derive from this passage. We need to support each other in prayer, words of encouragement, any other way we can. Absolutely. The wording here implies, first of all, that Joshua's abilities were already known to Moses. Ever think about that? Why did Moses choose Joshua? Why did he say to Joshua? Now, I mean, Joshua is not even mentioned in Scripture before this passage. So why does Moses choose Joshua to, to lead the troops? Why doesn't he choose, you know, one of the other guys over here? There are 600,000 men. Why does he choose Joshua? How did jo Moses know that Joshua could command troops? Well, there isn't any way we can come up with a certain answer to this question. It's, of course, very likely the Lord revealed that to him because Moses was in constant communion with the Lord. But I think there's another possibility here, and that is Joshua, of course, had been living in Egypt. Now, if you read Josephus, Josephus will tell you that Moses actually commanded Egyptian armies when he was the son of Pharaoh's daughter in Egypt. Now, Scripture doesn't say that, but Josephus tells us that. And so it's very, very possible that Joshua had served in Egyptian armies before the Exodus because the Egyptian armies were often very multinational. They weren't just made up of ethnic Egyptians. They brought in units from all the conquered territories and incorporated them into their armies. They had black units from the Sudan to the south. They had Asiatic units and others. So it's very, very possible that Joshua had already had military experience in Egypt. And so Moses knew this man has had battle experience. And therefore, that in God's revelation to him, he gave Joshua the responsibility of commanding the troops. Now it's very possible too that Moses had already given him the responsibility for organizing the Exodus. Can you, can you imagine you've got two and a half million people leaving Egypt and going out into the wilderness. Now if, if somebody just said, hey you two and a half million come with me, how, how are we going to come? Well, <laughs> probably like the Sooners when they took over Oklahoma, you know, just bang, the guns goes off and they all go racing in in a, in a helter-skelter manner in, into the land. Well, it's very possible, too, that Moses, through Joshua, organized them all into units, columns, so that they marched in some kind of order uh, in that initial exodus and were able to... Imagine how hard it would be to get two and a half pe million people across the, 
the dry bottom of the Red Sea and any kind of uh, semblance of order and, and quickness here, if it was just a mob, they had to be organized in some way. And so Joshua may have been the one who did that. But whatever the case, Moses apparently turned unhesitatingly to Joshua to organize the defenses against the Amalekites. You prepare us an army to go to battle against Amalek, and I will go to the top of the hill, and I will hold up the rod of the Lord, and Aaron and Hur will go with me. Although the victory was obviously given by God, I think it's true that we could say that Aaron displayed great ability as he led them in that day as he had taken a bunch of ex-slaves and organized them into a relatively effective army. Armies of those days were not like armies of today. For one thing, you fought pretty much close at, at hand. Most of the killing was not done at long range because the only long range weapon you really had was the bow and arrow. Uh, you could fling a, a, a spear or a javelin a little ways, but most of the fighting was, was nose to nose, you know. Short swords, short spears, uh, hacking away at one another. And what's interesting, in most of these ancient battles were mostly just kind of a battle, a, a matter of pushing and shoving. And whichever side broke and began to run first, they're the ones that got cremated because the guns... It's interesting, uh, I was reading an article in Christianity Today written by a military historian, and he tells us that when they look at the wounds of most ancient warriors, they find most ancient warriors were killed with wounds in the back because they were running. And that's when they caught it. <laughs> and uh, otherwise, you've got shield to shield. You know, you're pushing each other like two pro football teams, you know, shield to shield here. And it's the first side that begins to get shoved off the field and breaks and runs that catches it and begins to be destroyed. So here's Amalek and Israel pushing each other here. And, and when uh, Moses' hands come down, why Joshua is being forced back by Amalek. And then when Moses' hands goes up, Joshua's forces are shoving the Amalekites back. And apparently there was this push and shove until, of course, ultimately the Amalekites were forced to break and run and were slaughtered. In verse 10 of this passage, we read that Joshua did as Moses told him. Joshua did as Moses told him. Joshua, as far as we can see throughout Scripture, and, and I'll note this later on, in all of the references to Joshua in the Pentateuch, there is never a negative statement about Joshua. I'm not saying he's a perfect man, because when you get into the book of Joshua, you suddenly discover Joshua makes some messes of some things, just as Moses did. But in the Pentateuch, there's never a negative statement made about Joshua. He displayed obedience to God from the very beginning. And therefore, since he believed that Moses was God's anointed leader of Israel, he obeyed Moses because God was speaking to him through Moses. And so it was his ultimate obedience to God that caused him to follow the leader chosen for, for Israel by God. You and I listen to our spiritual leaders and believe what they teach us and walk in obedience to that, not because we believe them to be true, but we believe God that they are preaching to be true, I trust. That's where heresy comes from. Heresy comes from when you begin to exalt the person over God behind the person. And there are some churches where you're, you're on the fringes of cult 
when you exalt the leader of the denomination or the pastor who it was and put him up on a pedestal and begin to look at him as somebody who is a super saint, you know, that's, that's very borderline cultish. Because we need to honor and glorify God above all and realize that all human beings are on the same level. Scripture teaches us that God does not honor one man above another. We are all equal. There is neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free in the eyes of God. And so we need to view it that way too. And so it was his ultimate faith and obedience to God that caused him to do what Moses asked him to do. And I'm sure there were times when Joshua thought, are you sure, Moses, <laughs> that this is what we ought to do? But he did it because he believed in the God of Moses. The result was a great victory over the warlike Amalekites. The Amalekites were a marauding tribe of people who were accustomed to warfare. You go out into the deserts of the Middle East and you discover there are Bedouin tribes that have been living out there from ancient times. And almost every one of those Bedouin tribes is very warlike. Because if they weren't, they wouldn't exist today. They had to be warlike to survive. And most of them are marauders. That is, they, they herd animals, but that's just sort of the staples of life. They get all the, f the nicer things of life by raiding other peoples and other communities. That's why the cities of the Near East built walls. To keep the marauders out. And to defend what they had gained down through the years. So the great victory over the warlike Amalekites was the product of obedience. In the spiritual realm, the word obedience equals victory. There is no spiritual victory without obedience to God. None. Obedience automatically produces victory because obedience in itself is a victory. A victory of faith over flesh. And you and I never resolve that question permanently in this life. Because we may have victory today and tomorrow we're faced all over again with an assault from another side and suddenly we flop. Like David did and Moses did and others did. One day, of course, when we cross Chile Jordan, as it were, and we pass into God's presence, victory will be ours forever. But in the meantime, we have to learn obedience all over again, it seems, almost day by day, at least the application of it, that we might have victory, personally and corporately, as the body of Christ. Thus, in the earliest records that we have concerning Joshua, we find him to be a man of faith, of obedience, of courage, and ability. The next time in Scripture, that we encounter Joshua in the, in the Pentateuch, the circumstances are in some ways even more amazing. Probably less than a month from the time of the battle over the Amalekites at Rephidim, the Israelites have moved into the southern Sinai and they've come to the base of a mountain known as Mount Sinai. I know there are all kinds of ideas about where Mount Sinai is and there are some new ideas that some have come up with about it being in, in, over in Saudi Arabia. And, but, but, you know, all of that is based on speculation, on, on a lot of uh, very tenuous evidence. I'm not a believer that we should walk in tradition only because tradition has overcome certain branches of the church. 
like the Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church are so sucked into tradition, they forget the Scripture. But there are times when tradition needs to be held above other things because if for two or four or 6,000 years people have believed this to be true, who are we to come along and say, well, because of this little idea we've got, we're going to change the whole thing? Because those who established the tradition lived a whole lot closer to the reality of the time than we do. So, whatever the case may be, I'm going to continue to believe that Mount Sinai is that barren rock down in southern Sinai Peninsula. It looks very much like where they would have been. Anyway, whatever the case may be. Let's uh, read from Exodus 24, verse 12. Now the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and remain there, and I will give you the stone tablets with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses arose with Joshua his servant, and Moses went up to the mountain of God. But the, to the elders he said, Wait here for us until we return to you, and behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a legal matter, let him approach them. Then Moses went up the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. And the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day he called out to Moses from the midst of the cloud. And to the eyes of the sons of Israel, the appearance of the glory of the, of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. And Moses entered the midst, into the midst of the cloud as he went up to the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Moses, as you know, had already verbally received the Ten Commandments. But now he's going up to get them actually carved in stone on the top of the mountain. The scripture here tells us that for six days, Moses stood on the mountain outside the cloud waiting for an invitation to enter into the cloud. You don't burst into God's presence. You go into God's presence upon invitation. And so Moses stood there waiting. And then after the invitation came, he went into the cloud. And for another 34 days, he was there communing with God within the cloud. Joshua, all that time, remained on the mountain below the cloud. This passage refers to Moses as servant or minister of Moses. Now, you and I usually take the word servant to mean somebody who polishes your boots and sets your table and washes your dishes or something of that nature. The Hebrew word does not mean that. The Hebrew word does not mean a menial servant. If we were to translate the meaning of the Hebrew word here, we could probably translate it using modern terminology as executive assistant. That's how we would do it in our modern business world, probably. Because the same word is used for Joseph in his relationship with Potiphar. And you remember that the scripture tells us that Potiphar gave into Joseph's hand complete authority over everything he had except his wife. Everything else that Potiphar had was under Joseph's, Joseph's control. And the same was true, and the same term is used for Elisha in his relationship to Elijah. Elisha was being prepared by the Lord and by Elijah to take Elijah's place. And so he was not his servant, his bootlack. He was the man being prepared who stood alongside and ministered along with Elijah. So this is the Joshua that we're referring to here. He stood on the mountain to be a support for Moses in uh, whatever way Moses was going to need him, he was nearby. In the 28th verse of Numbers 11, we read that Joshua was Moses' 
attendant from his youth. Now, youth in those days was used a little differently than youth today. We usually use the word youth for someone who is under 21 or 18 or something like that. But in the days of the Old Testament, a youth was anybody under 40. Yay, team. <laughs> Some of us are still in our youth or not far out of our youth, right? <laughs> um, and, and, and so we're talking about, compared to Moses, a relatively young man, half the age of Moses. No more than half the age of Moses here. He may have been even under 30. Remember when Jesus began his ministry, he didn't begin his ministry until the scripture says he was about 30. And the reason for that was until you had a beard and looked a little bit like you were, might be intelligent, nobody paid any attention to you. you know, Paul had to say to Timothy, don't worry about your youth. Just go ahead and minister anyway. But it was not common to pay much attention to somebody who looked pretty young. You know, it, it doesn't apply exactly these days, but... I remember years ago when I first uh, was teaching college at, at a state university and here I was, you know, I was about just past my mid-twenties and I was teaching a class in which, well, they were pretty much like this class in terms of the age composition. You know, a lot of older pierced men with gray hair and I felt a little bit strange, you know, teaching these older people. But Joshua was a man who was considered a youth. But of course, by the time his his apprenticeship was over, he would be 70 to 80 years of age, well qualified, of course, to lead his people. On Mount Sinai, Joshua's position has to be considered to be very difficult. He was alone on the mountain, halfway between Moses and the camp below. He was the watchman. He was the intercessor for both Moses and the Israelites down below. In some ways, I think it could be said that Joshua's stay on that mountain for 40 days was more difficult than Moses because Moses was in the presence of God. Moses was receiving the experience of the glory of God and the words of God being carved on the stone tablets. He was absorbed in his glory and in his words, whereas Joshua was not in the cloud. Joshua was below the cloud, looking up the cloud, and looking down at whatever degree he could see of the camp. He apparently couldn't see much of the camp down below because he didn't really understand what was going on until later on. So Joshua was neither experiencing the ecstasy of the presence of God nor the comforts of the camp. He was in training as an intercessor and as a spiritual leader. After receiving the Ten Commandments, Moses was told by God, go down the mountain because your people are committing a folly. They have made a golden calf and are worshiping it. And in Exodus 22, we won't turn there, but it tells us, it makes it clear that Joshua had remained on the mountain for the full 40 days and he had not been in the camp. In this verse, in, in the 22nd chapter of Exodus, 32nd chapter, I'm sorry, we discover that they were descending the mountain together. They were going down the mountain side by side. And Joshua was looking at Moses, you know, and Moses was kind of glowing over there. And Moses had these stone tablets, and Joshua was probably looking at these tablets in wonder, walking shoulder to shoulder down the mountain with Moses. And suddenly he heard the noise in the camp, and he said, 
It sounds like the sound of war. Well, you know, if you hear people crying and, and yelling and, and even singing at a great distance, you, you really, it just sounds like a tumult. And so he thought it was the sound of war. He had been in war. Uh, but Moses knew better because God had told Moses what it was. And he said, no, it's the sound of singing. Our people are in an act of folly. And sometimes we don't know, we don't recognize this because when you watch the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston, you don't see Joshua standing there. But when, when Moses came down the mountain and he saw the people in their religious orgy and he took those commandments and he flung them down the mountain, Joshua was right there by his side. I think Joshua was going, oh, you know, Moses, what are you doing? You've just flung the stones of God down the mountain and they shattered to a million pieces at the base of the mountain. I think it was with Joshua's help that Moses ground up the golden calf, melted it down, ground it up, and made the people drink the gold dust water. What a powerful example of righteous zeal. Joshua stood shoulder to shoulder with this man as righteous indignation flared out of him. Not natural human anger, but the anger of the Lord in between this powerful episode and the next that we discover in Exodus where Moses goes up to receive the, second the Ten Commandments a second time, there is another wonderful account. And there isn't time for me to develop it yet, but if you want to read in Exodus chapter 33 next week um, at the beginning of class, we'll look at a beautiful account of what happened there with Moses and Joshua and the tent of the Lord.